series on the mystery of human suffering. And we're going to entitle the message today, The Path of Suffering. We're going to follow it in its origin out of the Garden of Eden and see where it has come down to your life and to mine. I'm going to be reading several passages of Scripture. I ask you to listen carefully or follow along in your Bibles with them. We'll not be able to handle all of the Scriptures in an expository fashion, but we will be dealing primarily with the first section found in Genesis chapter 3 and verses 14, and I'll include verse 20 in the reading of the text. Genesis chapter 3 beginning with me in verse 14. The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shall thy go, and thus shall thou eat all the days of thy life. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. Yet the seed of the woman shall bruise your head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return into the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, Unto dust shall thy return. And then in verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Now follow me in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. As we follow the path now of what's going to take place as the garden now has been cursed and those that are in it. Genesis 4, verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife, She conceived and bare Cain, and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. She bare his his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Notice how optimistic Eve is upon the birth of her firstborn son. I've gotten a man from the Lord. But watch closely as to what happens. Joy can quickly be turned into sorrow as all of us who have lived any length of time in this world know. Genesis 4, verse 8. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. The first murder takes place within a family. If I forget to mention it in the message and later on, nearly the large percentage of misuse and abuse of human existence takes place in the family unit. More people have been killed and wounded in the marriage union than in all the wars throughout human history. Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. 
In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him, male and female, created he them and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image, and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were eight hundred years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he what? He died. Genesis chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. And Lamech lived a hundred and eighty and two years, and begat a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, The same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, if you would, one more passage of Scripture in our introductory reading. Go over to the New Testament book of Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verses 7 through 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law has said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment, note, might become exceeding sinful. Notice that last expression, that sin might become exceeding sinful. In the previous two messages in this series, we have traced the origin or the source of all human suffering to the universal curse which God has placed upon His creation, this due to the creature's sin. In the board at my left, here we are using the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle to try to put together the pieces that make up the mystery of human suffering. We are following the format of using what is best in putting together a puzzle, and that's finding the straight edges and piece, piecing them together. And then when we get a perfect square, then we have a place where the individual pieces in the middle will fit together. We are maintaining that there are four principles taught in Scripture which must be held in balance and in truth if we are to have a balanced understanding of human suffering as revealed by God. And that these four different principles are essential. If any one of the four is denied, you will not be able to come up with a correct understanding of human suffering from a biblical standpoint. 
The first principle that we looked at is that human suffering is traced to the creature's sin. All human suffering which you're experiencing and you know others are experiencing today can be traced back to the first sin there of Adam and of Eve. If you deny that, you'll never come up with a biblical understanding of human suffering. Okay? This is a doctrine that is being widely denied in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Sin has all but disappeared as far as anybody dealing with it anymore. But this is essential. If you erase this, you'll never be able to make heads or tails out of why people suffer. The second ingredient we looked at last week, and that is the ingredient of the character of God as revealed in Scripture. You cannot limit any of the attributes of God in order to try to explain human suffering. God is all-powerful, He is all-knowing, and He is everywhere present. If you attempt to limit any of those attributes and any of His other attributes in order to try to remove God from the presence of suffering, you will come up with a warped understanding of the teachings of suffering in Scripture. So we must affirm that in spite of human sin, God is what? He is still in control of all the affairs of heaven and earth. It will do no good to try to say, well, God didn't have anything to do with that. The moment you start doing that, then you place limitations upon the attributes of God and you come up with a warped understanding of human suffering. Now today, we will move to the third part of the framework And that is what we're going to call the curse of God upon sin. God's curse on sin. Or we might also refer to it as the attribute of God's wrath upon sin. We have now examined the problem which appears to exist between the character of God's being coexisting with suffering and death in the created order. We saw that God's character is holy and righteous, that He hates sin, suffering, and death. Do you believe that? Yes, God, while He is all-sovereign, He hates sin, suffering, and death because of what it has done to His creative design. At the end of each of the days... Of creation, it was said of this repeated phrase, and God saw that it was what? It was good. When sin entered the picture, it blasted that creative order, and God is opposed to sin, suffering, and death. Nevertheless, because God is loving, all powerful, all knowing, and sovereign, He is in control of all sin, suffering, and death. This is the second part of our framework. And thus, we have the creature's sin and God's character forming two sides of the puzzle, and we must stay within that framework. So we come today upon this matter of the curse of God on sin, the wrath of God revealed from heaven, and we seek to establish what Paul calls the exceeding sinfulness of sin. You will never appreciate human suffering if you have a low esteem of human sin. If you don't think sin's very serious, 
you'll never understand how God can be so angry with it. And you'll never see your need of Christ as a Savior either until you first see yourself as a guilty sinner in need of a Savior. Now, the Bible is a book which contains a plot or a storyline. In our study of the Bible, we can become so absorbed in a verse or even a book that we lose sight of the plot or the story. There are times when we stand so close to an object that we cannot see it properly. For example, stand with your eyes about an inch from a large tree and try to imagine that you've never seen a tree before. Stare at that tree for several minutes with just what you can see about an inch in front of you. And then... Describe what the tree looks like. How would you describe it? Would you give a correct description? No, you would not. You must stand back and see the entire tree. And then you will see that in addition to the bark on the tree, there are also leaves, branches, a trunk, and underground roots. Let's now stand back this morning and look at the big picture of the Bible's plot and how its story unfolds and the impact that sin and suffering has made on God's created order. If you only study small bits of the Bible and you only get bits or pieces and you never see where the big picture is, you'll never understand what God's getting at in this world here below. The Bible begins with God creating the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2. And God repeatedly says of his workmanship that it was very good. Man is placed in a paradise known as the Garden of Eden, which brings forth fruit, food, without any care or worry or deprivation or fear of starvation. There is no sin, and there is no suffering. In Genesis 3, disobedience and rebellion toward God breaks out in the ranks of the angels and overflows into the lives of the original pair of human beings known as Adam and Eve. And this marks the onset of suffering, pain, toil, frustration, worry, and death. Genesis chapter 4 describes the first murder as Cain kills his brother Abel. Then in chapter 5, we have the genealogy of Adam's descendants marked out by the sad repetition of each one, quote, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. This is truly paradise lost. In Genesis 5:29, we are informed that all of this is traceable to the curse, not which the devil put on this earth, but which God now has placed upon his created order. We are also told that through the means of suffering, a descendant from the very womb of Eve, 
would remove the curse and repair the damage done by sin. First mention of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The end of the Bible gives us the result of this redemptive work accomplished by God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me quote from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Isn't that an encouraging scene? You and I have never seen or experienced anything like that. We came into this world crying. Did you know that? When that doctor slapped you on the back, you, you let out a yell. And that's all we've known is crying and suffering and pain. We don't know anything what we just read about here in Revelation. That's the end of the story. It's a scene in which that all forms of suffering and death are removed and a new eternal world of righteousness is put in place. But this scene can only be such because the end of suffering is connected with the end of sin. If sin is permitted to enter into that new heaven and new earth, we've got this same thing to do with all over again, you see. In Revelation 21, 27, we read, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is truly paradise restored. I find it interesting, as a side note here, that today's typical funeral, nobody goes to hell anymore, particularly at a funeral. You'd better not ever hold a service and question whether the person involved didn't get to heaven. Now, have you ever stopped to think about people that think that everybody's going to heaven, that they live a wicked life here below, but somehow when they die, their character is just take, taken right on into heaven? Well, what would it do to heaven? It'd pollute the whole thing. Would you really want to be in heaven with the mass of people that you know that have lived ungodly lives and have died having no interest in Christ? I certainly would not because I know it would just be a repetition of what's going on down here right now. So the reason that there's not going to be any suffering and death in heaven is not going to be sin in heaven. And that has to be ceased. The new heaven and the new earth is truly paradise restored. It's at the beginning and at the ending of the Bible story that we have human existence in a sinless environment free of suffering. 
You have it in the opening chapters of Genesis, and then you have it in the closing chapters of Revelation. No suffering, no sin. But between the fall and the end of history, we are exposed to a continual world of sin and suffering. And folks, it's not going to get any better. As long as the curse of God exists on His created order, put it down, be ready to be exposed to sorrow, suffering, pain, and death. And that's in your experience. You're not going to get out of this thing alive unless you happen to be in that last generation when the Lord comes. All right? The main point that I'm making is that from the Bible storyline, sin and suffering are related. All of the rest of the Bible's unfolding story fits within this framework. And thus, in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul describes this present interval of time existing in which that we are living right now to the end of this age as, quote, this present evil world. That's his description of this life that we are living. Now, sometimes confusion arises by failing to see that the word evil is used in the Bible in several ways. It is used first, now stay with me on this, this is important, Evil is used first in a moral sense, denoting sin or rebellion against God. But evil is also used in another sense to refer to all the suffering, pain, and afflictions caused by the sin of evil in the first sense. Turn with me in the Old Testament prophecy of Ezekiel. I think you'll find an interesting statement that is made here in this one passage of Scripture where evil is used in both of these senses and yet distinguished in two different ways. Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 8 through 11. I'll read it and then we'll make some observations. God says to his people Israel, Yet will I leave a remnant that ye may have some that shall escape the sword among the nations, when ye shall be scattered through the countries. And they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations, whether they shall be carried captives, because I am broken with their whorish heart, which hath departed from me, and with their eyes, which go a-whoring after their idols. Now listen. And they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord, and that I have said in vain that I would do this evil upon them. Thus saith the Lord God, smite with thine hand and stamp with thy foot, and last for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword by the famine and the pestilence. Now, there are two ways in which the word evil is used here in two different senses in one section of Scripture. Here, God is going to judge Israel for the evils or the sins of idolatry. That's moral. 
And he's going to do so by exposing them to the evils, you with me, of war, famine, and disease. See the distinction? One way, it's sinful acts on the part of Israel. The other sense in which evil is used, God says, I will do evil upon you. Not that he is sinning, but that he would use war, famine, and disease as an evil to punish them for the evil of their sins. So in one passage, you have the way that the word evil is used in two different senses. Thus, the evil of sin brings with it the evil of suffering. Keep that in your mind. The evil of sin brings with it the evil of suffering. The two are always found together within the pages of Scripture. Now, biblical theology describes a distinction of existing, of consisting of moral evil and natural evil. There's a difference, Brother Jim, between the evil that occurs in a violent murder and the evil that occurs in a violent earthquake. See the difference? One is moral. You kill somebody, that's a moral act. But an earthquake has no morality to it. One evil is caused by human sin and the other by natural disaster, even as God may be behind the scene. While this distinction is helpful, it must not be overlooked that both kinds of evil, though, have a common origin. They are the result of sin or rebellion against God and God's judgment upon sin. Adam, before the fall, never knew what an earthquake was. He never knew what a hurricane, a tornado was. He never knew what disease was. But all of these are God's activity of controlling the natural laws which he has established to bring upon sinful men the consequences, the evil of their sin, the punishment, the affliction, the consequences of sinning. You cannot sin and escape the consequences. And you and I are living in a sinful world, and we're going to be exposed to the consequences of that as long as we're here in this life. Evil or sin, is the failure to do what God requires. Or it's the doing of something which God forbids. The failure to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind is the greatest of all evils because God has commanded it. Jesus said this is the greatest commandment, to love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. To violate that commandment makes you a great sinner in the sight of God. Hmm? How many of us would stand this morning and say, I have done that. I do that all the time. I love God supremely, and I love my neighbor perfectly. And no one will do that because they know that the Pharisee did that in the Bible, and Jesus condemned him for doing it. We all have to cry out, God be merciful to what? To me, the sinner. All have sinned and come short of fulfilling the great commandment of the glory of God. The failure to love our neighbor 
is a great evil for the same reason. To covet someone's wife, house, or car is a great evil because God has forbidden covetousness. In the Bible, evil can only be seen as it is confronted with the dimensions of God's character. You look in the mirror and look at yourself and do like the witch, uh, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of us all, and you know how fair you'll come out, you'll look real good. But you look at yourself in the mirror of God's holiness, and it's an entirely different picture. You'll not see beauty there. You'll see all kinds of warts and all kinds of distortions because we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The ugliness of evil is established by the beauty of God. The filthiness of evil is established by the purity of God. The selfishness of evil is established by the love of God. It is only in the light of God's holy character that sin becomes exceeding sinful. And if we don't look into the character of God, we'll never see sin as exceeding sinful. And then we'll begin to have a different view of suffering. That, well, I really didn't deserve this. Or how could God do this? It's only as we are led to believe that disobedience to God's commands is inconsequential that we will, we will never see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. You think lightly on sin, and you'll never see how sinful that it is. Then we will view suffering in a different light. How so, Pastor? Rather than seeing suffering as something we deserve as sinners, we will see ourselves as unfortunate victims of God's providence. This shouldn't have happened to me. I was too good a person to have had this happen to me. You don't see sin properly, you'll not see suffering properly. The first lie which Satan used in deceiving Eve was that disobeying God was not that big a deal. In other words, you shall not surely die. You're taking this thing too seriously, Eve. He was informing Eve that God was not a God who would judge sin at least to the degree she'd been led to believe. In today's language, Satan was saying, God is too loving to destroy a creature made in his own image. That's the lie of the serpent. As soon as sin appeared in the garden, God appeared. and called the participants into a courtroom of justice. After finding all the parties guilty, God proceeds to announce the penalties which would be executed in the form of a curse. And in doing so, He would reveal His wrath from heaven upon the ungodly creatures who would dare to insult the glory of of his being as God. 
And you read Romans 1 about how the wrath of God has appeared from heaven upon men. Don't think you've got to go outside and look for a lightning bolt. How has God revealed His wrath upon sin? We're going to see it here in Genesis chapter 3 by sending forth the evils of suffering. This is how His displeasure is manifested upon a creation that is entirely under His curse. The first curse fell not on humanity, but upon the serpent or Satan. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. It resulted in the demotion of Satan as the highest creature among the angels to that of the level of an animal in the lowest of God's creation. He was told that he would be so demoted that he would have to crawl on his belly and eat dust. And that's a symbolic way of saying, you will now experience frustration and defeat. Now, Satan has a lot of power. You agree with that? But Satan is the most frustrated being that existing now in God's moral universe. He knew what he once had the privilege of. And he knows where he's at right now. To where, Brother Walter, he can't even touch the body of a pig, the lowest of the creation in the the Jewish mind. He can't even touch the body of a pig until he goes to Jesus Christ and gets permission to do so. Do you think that doesn't anger him? you think he's not a frustrated being? He's going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour because of his frustrations. You and I as moral beings can relate to frustrations when we have desires and expectations, but we can't fulfill them. Satan possesses those same desires and expectations, but he can't fulfill one of them without the permission of God Almighty. What a humiliating thing he is, a frustrated being even today. God was saying to Satan, you will always fall short of reaching your desires. You will have continuous aspirations, but never any attainments. You who thought you could ascend to my throne by getting me to destroy my creature man shall now descend to a state of burning desire without any satisfying achievement. That's where Satan's pain is today, is the wrath that he is enraged with. But he can't get rid of it because it's burning in his own lust. God also announced the onset of a declaration of war with Satan. Now, God is a God of peace, but he does not make peace with sin and Satan. He laid down the rules of the warfare. Satan would be able to afflict the offspring of the woman. But the humanity springing forth from the woman would win the war. God is going to play war games with Satan. And he assures Satan up front 
that the infinite creator will never be defeated by a finite creature. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to let you do this. You're going to end up bruising the heel of the one who's going to come. But you're not going to win. I'm going to be the one who's going to be God, and you're going to be the creature. Now, warfare is not comfortable. It's a source of vast suffering, even for the victors. Hmm? How many of our soldiers have we seen come home with wounds that they will live with the rest of their life? Humanity will suffer, and God Himself will suffer in the humanity of His only begotten Son. Satan is not holding back anything in this war. He hates humanity because it reminds him of God. And thus, humanity made in the image of God becomes Satan's target for getting back at God. We call this demonic stress. And my hearers, every one of you is an object exposed to the satanic attacks of the devil himself. We have to contend with this in the fallen world. You, you mean, preacher, you really still believe in the devil? I absolutely did because Jesus did. And all humanity is exposed to the onslaughts of Satan, even redeemed humanity. Peter, Satan hath desired to sift you. But I pray for you that your faith fail not. Part of the struggles that you and I have in our daily lives, we must recognize, comes from wickedness in high places in spiritual realms which we do not see with eyes, hear with our ears, but it is a wickedness of great power. And we need to recognize that living below in this fallen world, we are continually exposed to satanic onslaughts. This is demonic stress. God now then deals with the sin of the woman in Genesis 3.16. His judgment upon the female consists of two parts. First, trouble will become manifest in everything to do with her childbearing capabilities. She shall experience sorrow or trouble or pain or suffering in childbearing. Those Bible teachers, I believe, miss the point here when they limit this to just the physical pain that a woman has to go through in bearing a child because you can get a shot for that and bear a baby and not have to experience any pain. But the Scripture here is not talking about just physical pain in bearing children. What's it talking about? It refers to the lifelong sorrow which children can cause their parents. Nothing hurts a parent more than to be wounded by one of their children. 
Parents are now forced to observe how their children are born in sin and experience the consequences of their children's disobedience. If you want to see pain in a mother or a dad, just talk to them about a wayward child. I've seen tears come down the faces of adults that you could catch in a bucket as they've sat in my office and described what their children were participating in as adults. See their hearts broken. And their memory would go back to the first time that that child was placed in their arms. And oh, what expectations. Eve said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Wait a few years. That man from the Lord will end up killing his own brother. Talk to Eve then about motherhood. And she will learn the impact of God's curse on sin. You that are new parents, you're bringing children into a world which is exposed to sin, suffering, and death. That's God's order. Now, some reason, well, that's the case, then I just won't bring any children to this world. No, that doesn't fit in with the Bible either. Sinful parents are exposed, Brother Asa, to the agonies of raising sinful children. Hmm? Does your heart bleed with your situation right now? You have to go and visit that son in the penitentiary. You have to go through all of those humiliating things you have to go through just to get in. See him walk out in those clothes. And I'm not trying to hurt Asa. I know Asa well enough. He'll appreciate me what I'm saying. It breaks your heart. When I accompany him there, I'm thinking, what would be going through my mind if one of my children were in this penitentiary. It's painful raising children. Eve, that's what you've got to contend with. Instead of bringing children to the world in a happy paradise, Eve, you're bringing them into a world that's under the curse of God. Consequences of sin are going to be showing up. The second part of the curse on the woman exposes her to strife in the marriage relationship. Rather than desiring to submit to her husband's headship, she now will desire to take control of his headship. And he in turn will have to struggle to retain it. Listen. Here's where the battle of the sexes began in the garden. Eve never had any problem submitting to the headship and authority of her husband Adam before the fall. It was after the fall. And ladies, if you were not a sinner, you wouldn't either. If you're married, you wouldn't have any problem submitting to your husband's headship if you were not a sinner. 
And you're going to try to take that authority which God gave to the man, take it away from the man, and say, hey, I want part of that. And God will not condone that. I don't care how you twist and bend the Scripture. The Scriptures teach from Genesis throughout Revelation that in the marriage union, there is the male that is the headship, and there is the female that is to exemplify subordination to that. That's not very popular today. That's why the Bible is not very popular today. You preach the Bible in the full balanced up picture of it, and you will have very few people sitting under that type of ministry. But you just avoid all these texts that are, that are troublesome, and you can fill a church. But just start going through the text of the Bible and find out what the Bible really lays out, and you'll see where the problems begin to show up. This curse will overflow into the lives of children disobeying their parents and parents abusing their children and then into all the areas of social life. And I must not leave you men out, we men out. If we loved our wives as Christ loved the church, they wouldn't have the problem submitting unto us, okay? We've got the same thing there. Ephesians chapter 5. It's a two-sided coin here. But I'm a sinful husband and my wife is a sinful wife. So contrary to how we look here at church where everything is lovey-dovey, it's not always lovey-dovey in our home. Hmm? My mother, who's come to live with us for two years now, is writing a whole book (laughs) on our relationship get around people. You find sparks fly. You find disagreements. Adam and Eve never had that prior to the fall. But because of sin, the sparks start flying. You hook up two sinners in one union, and that's what you're going to get. Problems. We have to make the best of it. This is what we call social stress. Human relationships will be strained and stressed by the selfishness of sin's power. And as I stated in the outset, it's an interesting note that the majority of human conflict and violence has taken place in the domestic realm of the family and the home. Just check the crime statistics here in Birmingham, Alabama, and you know where most of them and a vast majority originate at and take place at? Not out here in the alleys with the drug cartel, but within the homes of husbands and wives shooting and poisoning each other and abusing the children. That's where the most violence takes place. It always has. The place where the greatest love should exist has now through sin been turned into the place where the greatest anger and frustration reside. Genesis 4 reminds us that the first murder occurred in the family unit when Cain killed his brother Abel. And thus the creation is exposed to both demonic stress and social stress, and your life is there. God now turns to the man, verses 17 through 19 of Genesis 3. While the curse is directed to Adam, it extends to all of his his descendants. Adam's action was not one of ignorance. He chose the companionship of his deceived wife rather than the fellowship of his holy Creator. 
The penalties of evil which shall afflict Adam are threefold. First, he's exposed to environmental stress. The ground is cursed. Before the fall, Adam had no worry about survival as food was abundant in the garden. But now the elements in nature shall work against him in his efforts to survive. The rain, the wind, the sun which are needed for his food supply, will often destroy his food supply. The environment of thorns and thistles will hinder his struggle to survive. And in his war with his environment, man in turn will destroy his environment by polluting the air he breathes and the water which he drinks. And this will all flow from greed and selfishness rather than managing the resources which God has given to us in a responsible manner. This struggle to survive will continue throughout human existence. And the second penalty which Adam shall confront is occupational stress on the job, making a living. In the sweat of his face, he will earn his livelihood. Before his sin, his work had consisted of uninterrupted pleasure and enjoyment. Now his work will be mixed with pain and weariness. Rather than his job being a delight, it will become frustrating and unrewarding. Even the best of jobs now has its agonies, its disappointments, and its setbacks. Do you agree with that? I don't care how good a job you've got, that job has problems. God's given me the greatest job to give a man on earth, and that's to be a minister of the gospel. Do you think it's without its problems? Hmm? Do you? Absolutely not. Do you realize that even Jesus Christ, God's own Son, the greatest minister that God's ever sent to the earth, would look upon his congregation one day and said, Have I been with you so long that you do not know this? And other occasions he would look upon people and say, and he was angered at the hardness of their heart. Numerous times in my 43 years of ministry, on Monday morning, I've been ready to make out my resignation and quit. That's right. The ministry, the most enjoyable calling that a person ought to have can be the one of the most frustrating, lonely, disappointing jobs that you can ever be involved in. If you don't believe that, just try it for 30 days. Hmm? It's part of the curse. Because you're dealing with sinful people. And you yourself are a sinner. Frustrating. The third penalty is the mortal stress which lies ahead of Adam. Adam is assured he has an appointment with death facing him. He will return to the dust from whence he came. And no matter what means he tries to use to avoid thinking about it, he knows that death shall come. Every funeral service serves to remind us of this reality. 
And yet I have seen a tremendous change in the way that funerals are conducted in my own lifetime. Instead of bringing the audience face to face with the sober reality, someone has died, and he died, and he died, and he died. The whole service is now being geared to try to get people's mind off of the fact that the person has died and make them happy and upbeat so that they can leave without having to even be made to think about, and he died. Why did he die? These five sources account for the stress which brings about human suffering, demonic stress, social stress, environmental stress, occupational stress, and mortal stress. And these three things tell us what to expect in living in a fallen world and the consequences it brings. Number one, here's what you can expect. The Bible teaches you and me to expect that life in this present world is filled with pain, sorrow, and sufferings. Okay? That's what you can expect. Paul told the early converts that through much tribulation you shall enter the kingdom. The second thing that these things teach us is that life in this present world grows continually worse. The older that you get, the more pain and suffering that you go through. Ecclesiastes bears witness to this, the 12th chapter. And the third reality that these things teach us is that life in this present world ends in death. Quite a Mother's Day message, isn't it? Well, I guarantee you God didn't come out there with a smile on His face when he found Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, where are you, Adam? What have you done? Well, I did this. My wife did this. Find you guilty. Here's what's going to happen. The thinking of fallen man is like that of Cain when he rejected the truth of God and went forth seeking to build a society based on human progress rather than dependence upon God. St. Augustine called it the city of man. Man in his natural state believes that whatever is unpleasant will eventually go away by means of human achievement. This hope is eventually lost in frustration as the realities of life are set in. This is the cause of many frustrations among our youth of today. Young people are being told by family and church that life does not or should not have troubles. Then when they encounter them, they're surprised and do not know what to do. And with no meaning or purpose seen in life, they dull their pain with drugs and alcohol and other means. And when these painkillers wear out, there's nothing left but hopelessness and despair, and many end up taking their own life. You know what the second cause of death among teenagers is? outside of accidents, is suicide. Somebody's not being honest with our youth today. Sin and suffering ending in death is the revelation of God's holy wrath from heaven. 
This is the Bible's explanation. This is why the Bible is despised and rejected by fallen man seeking to build his own city of man without God. The pertinent question should be asked in conclusion. Why is suffering ending in death God's chosen form of punishment for Adamic or human sin? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Couldn't God have punished man in some other way? Why did he choose this way? The answer from the Bible is that suffering ending in death is God's well-considered judicial sentence against the creature's sin. Suffering ending in death is a limitation, Brother Pete, placed upon us creatures to remind us that we are not gods. Suffering ending in death teaches us that we are only finite creatures with finite limitations and privileges, and God will not share His glory with a finite creature who seeks to remove that glory and worship the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Suffering ending in death is God's express, now get it, determination to limit and humble our arrogance and pride. The sinfulness of the finite creature is an insult and attack upon the honor and glory of God's infinite being as the Creator. And this means that I, as a finite creature, have sinned against my infinite Creator I am worthy of an infinite punishment if God so judges to execute that sentence upon me. And God may, Brother Asa, in His infinite wisdom, choose to execute the sentence upon any creature under His curse at any time, in any way, and in any degree. Hmm? Now, folks, that's sobering. It's appointed unto man once to what? Die. And God's made that appointment. He's appointed how you're going to die. And that's to serve to remind you you're under a death sentence. You're a finite creature to humble you. And God can bring about your death by taking you in the night while you are asleep, or He can bring about a slow, lingering death in a building collapsing upon you. That's His business. But you can't say, I didn't deserve it. If all of us got what we deserved here, we'd all be in hell today. You're getting mercy if you're here today. So this means that my suffering and death is not simply something that happens to me. It happens to me because I am a sinner. This means I'm responsible for my own suffering and death. I've brought it on myself. In my sinfulness, I have attracted the just wrath and displeasure of God and that wrath is God's personal and judicial reaction to my sinfulness. It is due to our failure to grasp the magnitude of our sinfulness that causes us to feel that our sufferings are an unfair sentence on the part of God. Get it? We should remember it is foolish to criticize God for executing the sentence which our sin deserves as it is to criticize a judge who executes a just sentence on someone who has robbed another human being of their life. All mankind shares alike in deserving the wrath of God. 
May God show us the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. Now, this gives us the completed three sides of the frame of our puzzle in which that we're seeking to understand the mystery of human suffering. Side one, the creature's sin. Side two, the character of God. Side three, the curse of God upon sin. We have one more side to complete before we come to the inside and start putting those pieces together. And when I'm allotted to speak next, we'll deal with the ultimate mystery of God's loving solution for suffering. Wonder what that is. Christ suffers. <laughs> and we as His people suffer. And both of those bring about an end to suffering. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the opportunity to come to worship You today. We're attempting to seek into the mysteries of Your Word to try to seek to understand all of the suffering that we see around us and within us. And we pray Your blessings upon this attempt. May it give all of us elderly, those of us who are drawing close to that river which has no bridge that we must cross, even young people and young boys and girls, may they be given a measure of understanding 